am humbled by God's grace and His mercy towards me. I suppose that we can all say that, I hope. Uh, this morning, if you would uh, open your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, this is the first book in the New Testament. This morning, we're going to examine chapter 24, verses 36 through 51. We'll pray for God, the Holy Spirit, to open the passage for our understanding. We'll then read the text under consideration, and then we will dissect the passage uh, for application. So if you would pray with me. Father God, you only, you, you and you alone know the time of the great day of Jesus' return. We ask for grace in the Holy Spirit that you would illuminate this passage to our understanding this morning. We need grace to be awakened to the reality of Jesus' imminent return. We need grace to enable us to be watchful and dutiful in this unknown time of the great day of the Lord. Forgive us, Lord, when we have been unfaithful stewards. Forgive us for remaining to be at ease when you have prescribed for us work to do while we wait. While we wait, Lord, for your sure promise return. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you are able, would you stand for the reading of the infallible and errant word of God from Matthew 24? beginning in verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore be on alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time the of night the thief was coming, he would have been on alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour when he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's word. Maybe seated. This really is the first of two messages uh, to set up the coming series as we go through the book of Revelation. And when we consider the times that we live in, the evil t- uh, of our times and the scriptural depiction of these last days, it's not hard for us to conclude that we're living in the last of the last days. 
In our text today, we're going to be examining the last day. That is the day of the Lord Jesus Christ's return. The day when he comes in judgment against the wicked and gathers his elect. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus poses the most serious question a Christian ought to answer in these last days. Looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Now he was telling them a parable to show that all at all times they ought to pray not to lose heart. Saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on earth? This is the big question. Like the disciples, we live in an age when injustice and moral corruption, they surround us. And for the sake of faith in Jesus Christ, his disciples are marginalized, oppressed, and persecuted. Jesus says, for a surety, judgment will come and it will come suddenly. And God will bring about justice for his people suddenly and quickly. Don't think that his delay means that it won't come quickly and it won't come as a surprise. And I ask us, do we trust that? Well, what about you? What about me? The question the Christian will need to answer is when Christ returns is, will he find me faithful? Will he find me faithful? In Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe every tear from his eyes. This is the answer for us if we remain faithful. And Jesus is answering a question that the martyrs are asking in heaven. They ask this. They say, who will be able to stand. They ask this question. They say to this question, this end days, this sudden coming of the Lord, the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders of the rich and the strong and every slave and free man, they will hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide on us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Who is able to stand? They cried out from heaven, those who had been persecuted for their faith. They cry out from heaven and they say, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging the blood on those who 
dwell on the earth. And there was given to them each a white robe, and they were told that they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So this is the question, that that, that times they are, are troubled. There is trouble coming at us. There will be trouble. It is a promise from Jesus that we will live in these troubled times. But the big question is, is that when the day of the Lord comes, will he find faith? Will he find me faithful? Who will be able to stand on that day? Who will be able to stand? I think we ought to ask ourselves that question. Will I be able to stand when the judge of the world comes to gather his people to himself? Will I be counted among the elect? Will I be those who, the one who has been found faithful even to the end? The great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? The question of our text asks us this. Are you alert to the immediacy of Christ's return? And are you ready If the Lord returns in the middle of this sentence, are you ready? Will you be able to stand? Who will be able to stand? Who is able to stand on the great day of the wrath of the Lamb? Looking at chapter 24 and verse 6 of Matthew. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened, for those things must take place, but that the end is not yet. Many people, when they study eschatology or they study these last things in these last days, they speculate on when that day will be. What is the timing of the Lord's gathering of the saints? The apostles posed this question uh, upon seeing the resurrected Christ. In Acts chapter 1, remember, he, he said, Lord, at this time, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? His answer in verse 7 was, it's not for you to know the times or the epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. The Father is the distinct fount of the divine prerogative. Notice in our passage, in verse 36, of that hour and of that day, no one knows. No one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. See, he doesn't even reveal everything to the angels. He doesn't reveal everything to the Son as it concerns that time. Those are the most uh, connected to the execution of his will, and yet they don't know the timing of his return. That is for the Father and the Father alone to know. Jesus tells the disciples in, in the book of Acts, uh, what they ought to be concerned uh, about in knowing the timing of God's, of God's plan. In chapter 1, verse 8 of Acts, he says, in the power of the Holy Spirit, your concern is to be a faithful witness of Jesus Christ in these last days. Will you restore the kingdom? Israel says, that's not yours to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be witnesses to me, witnesses of me, to tell the truth about me to be a light to who I am. You won't know the time of the last days. But what can we be certain of in these times 
in which we live. Verse 35 of Matthew 24. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What we can be assured of is that the word of God will come to pass. Everything he says in it will come to pass. The uncertainty of the timing of Christ's return makes the true Christian more watchful, knowing that our redemption draws near. But to those who suppose that Christ's return is afar off, it makes them more careless. I want to pose to you this question. Will the careless stand in the last day? Will those who compartmentalize their walk with Jesus stand in the last day? I think the text seems to tell us not. Over and over again, it says, be ready, be alert, be watchful. Verse 37, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Earlier in chapter 24 and verse 3, the disciples pose a question to Jesus, a question for which I think we all want the answer. What will be the sign of your coming? What will be the sign of the end of the age? The sign will be that the last days will be just like the days of Noah. What will it look like to live in a world that is like the days of Noah? Genesis 6 gives us a clue of what that world will look like. What that world looked like then is what the world looks like now. Genesis 6 verses 5 through 7 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of mankind was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was evil continually. So the Lord was sorry that he made mankind on earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Then the Lord said, I will wipe out mankind whom I have created from the face of the land, mankind and animals as well, and crawling things and the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. The wickedness of mankind is great in our day. Self-indulgence is celebrated. There's no justice for the most vulnerable in our society. In 2020 alone in the United States, 620,327 lives were extinguished by abortion for the sake of expediency. In 2020 alone, and in our country alone, 620,327 lives extinguished just for the sake of convenience. Our public school systems today are pushing a left-wing ideology and are encouraging young people to self-identify and big business medicine is ready, is at the ready to mutilate children. These children who are not considered mature enough to vote put in their hands a decision to identify as something other than what God told them that they are by biology, by creation. Put that in their hands. This is a great choice. And the doctors are ready they're ready to make big money to mutilate our children. And we think that we're not wicked. Society and, and science and, and governments will tell us that we're just getting better, people. We're getting better. Technology has advanced us. We are improving. We're beyond what the, what the scriptures teach. We have moved ourselves ahead. Really? Have we moved ourselves ahead? Think about the atrocities that are going on all around us. We should allow the influence of extremists in our society to rule the day. 
That's who rules the day right now, the extremists. The fact that I said this today is probably likely to get this whole message censored on social media. It'll probably be banned. Because the truth opposes this wickedness. The sign of the Lord's imminent, imminent return to me is self-evident. The sign that this is the last of the very last days to me is self-evident. And the last days that we live in, uh, they're just like the days of Noah. The master is coming soon. The wrath of the lamb will soon be upon us. Who will be able to stand? The church is sort of a lot erroneously thought of Christ as an escape plan. He is an escape plan in the end. But for some reason, we think this whole idea is we escape trouble now. And we become complacent, not watchful, not mindful of the fact that Jesus Christ, he came as a humble, lowly servant and he laid his life down for us that we would believe. But when he comes back, he is a king. He is the king who rules and reigns now from heaven. The one who rules and reigns now from heaven will come down and touch feet on the earth and it should be a very frightful day. A frightful day for those who are not faithful. What do we do in these last days? What will we do to be able to stand when the great wrath of the Lamb comes? Looking at verses 37 through 39. The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of son, the son of man be. As it was in the days of Noah, the return of the Lord Jesus will come at a time when we are going through the normal rhythms that make up a human life. We will be going through the normal rhythms that make up a human life. We'll be celebrating holidays with our families and friends. We'll hold feasts to mark special events. Our children will be branching out from us. They will be leaving home. They will be joining their spouses. And in the midst of that, suddenly, the Lord will come. The Lord will come. The day of the flood came. The family of Noah, they were alert to the coming day, and they were ready, even in the rhythms of their everyday life. Noah's children were marrying one another. They were celebrating together, but they were preparing they were ready for the day when the Lord came. They remained faithful to what God's word had told Noah about preparing the ark. They remained faithful. They lived in the normal rhythms of life, but the flood came and it came suddenly for them as, as suddenly as it came for those who were unaware. To those upon whom the flood came, it came to their horror, shock, and their demise. And they had this disordered view of the rhythms of human life. Faithfulness to the Lord and his cause took a back seat to the celebration of what it means to live a human life. 
Living life to the full became an end in itself. Does that not sound like the days that we live in now? Living life to the full is the end. The end in itself. Marrying, giving in marriage, celebrating feasts with our family and our friends, finding as much joy and sucking all the marrow out of this life that we can possibly get. That's the end in itself. The flood will come. The lamb will come. The king of the universe will come when you least expect it. Marriage was ultimate instead of subordinate to the relationship with God. Eating and drinking became more than a necessity. But indulgence was the virtue that was exalted in these last days. See, the Christian life is to be a life that is lived in order. A life in which the ordinary rhythms of life, the eating and the drinking and the celebrating in marriage, yes, we ought to do that. But we have to recognize them as a grace from God. All of those things are a grace from God. The rhythms of life, the food that we eat, the family we share joy with, is a grace from God. It's a life that is ordered. The food and, and drink that we have, we receive this with thankful hearts, acknowledging that God is giving his, his great provision. Our celebrations in life are saturated with joy, but joy at our salvation. We, we rejoice in our salvation as we rejoice in one another. Our daily rhythms are saturated with prayer. The calendars that we set are prioritized around the rhythms of prayer, the rhythm of worship, the rhythm of gathering together on the Lord's day, the rhythm of discipling relationships in which we encourage others to repent and to believe. We cherish our marriages because God has joined two souls to be one for eternity, strengthening one another to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with their lives and through their marriage. One who has the right perspective on what marriage is understands what the scriptures teach about what marriage is. The joining of two souls as, as Christ loved the church and laid his life down for it. A husband and wife relationship is just that. It is a display of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a display of God's love and his grace and his mercy upon us. While we live our lives in the human rhythms, we remain mindful of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. That's the key here. That's the key here to understanding what this passage is getting at. They had the regular rhythms of life and those things are to be celebrated for sure. But they had them disordered as an end and a means in themselves. And God says, no, these are all a grace for me. These are a grace for me. You should be mindful of the fact that the wrath of the Lamb is coming, that the King is coming to put foot on the earth and make all things right. We understand the times. His return will also take the Christians by surprise in some ways in that we don't know the day or the hour of His return. But that surprise will be a surprise of joy. Right? We will be joy-filled when the Lord returns for us to take His people. When the Lord returns to take his people, when we don't know the hour, 
It'll come as a surprise. Because when the Lord comes, he brings from life to more life for the believer who is living in these last days, who's living in a God-ordered manner. But the return of the Lord will be a tragedy for those who live a disordered life. It will be a disordered life that leads to death. Ephesians 5, 14 through 17 says, For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So then be careful how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Ordered life, a life that is lived by grace. Who will be able to stand? Verse 40 and 41. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. The day of the Lord's return will be a surprising day. And it will be a separating day. A surprise unto death for those who have inordinate affections. A surprise unto life for those who are living their lives subordinate to God and his word by faith. The day of Christ's return is a day of separation, a day on which he will gather the elect to himself. Men and women will seemingly be going about the same chores, doing the same work. And yet, one will be gathered unto Christ, and one will be left to stand in judgment. One will be left to stand in judgment. Either the gospel, it divides, doesn't it? It is either believed upon with repentance unto faith and unto eternal life, or it is rejected unto judgment. I say this morning, be of great joy, you who have believed, because at any moment your redemption draws nearer. At any moment. And our moment of crisis happens when we first heard the gospel. But a second moment comes upon those who only pretend to believe. There's a moment of crisis that comes when you hear the gospel. You either repent and believe unto life, or you reject it. And you're awaiting the day that God will come and judge you. A second moment comes for those who only pretend to believe, those who attend to religion without obedience. I would say this morning, be warned. Be warned that the return of Christ is imminent. A surprising moment, a separating moment, a, mono, a moment of crisis draws near and lets you wake up. Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead. And we know for sure that in the church, the gathered are a mixed people. Some of those who have lives that are ordered after Christ, and others among us appear to be, but are not. In these last days, the believer and the pretenders are growing together. They're growing together in one congregation. The believers and the pretenders are, are sitting side by side. And they're growing up together. And they're almost indistinguishable. Almost. The Lord can distinguish them, and the Lord does. But to us, they're almost indistinguishable. 
Jesus describes this mixing and the coming separation in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while they were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and left. And when the wheat sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also became evident. And the slaves of the landowner, landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. The slave said to him, do you want us then to gather them up? But he said, no, while you're gathering up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the weeds and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. You see that he's saying the same thing about these last days, isn't he? That he will come, and for the elect, he will gather them to himself. For the others, be warned. There's judgment. Therefore, verse 42, be on alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. I want to pray just a moment for the Lord to help us in this congregation and in the congregations around us. Lord, I would ask you to help us to overcome the epidemic of false security in these last days. Help us to be those whose affections are rightly ordered according to your word. In these days when our culture declares self-indulgence and immediate gratification, guard us. Guard us, Lord, from capitulating to worldliness. I ask this in Jesus' name. As I study the Psalms and I pray through them in the evening, a few days ago, Psalm 199, 133 is one of my very favorite verses because it reminds me of this. Establish my footsteps in your word and do not let any wrongdoing have power over me. This is my prayer to the Lord in these last days. Order my steps by your word and don't let iniquity or wrongdoing have dominion over my life. Who will stand at the Lord's return? The alert, the ready. Let us not be discouraged that we live in such an evil age and time, but let us rejoice that Jesus who apprehended our hearts to believe is able to separate those who belong to him and to consummate our redemption in him and to bring us to eternal life. While we are in this life, though, it is always night. It always, it is always the third watch. We are living in the graveyard shift. The hours are the most difficult hours to, to stand watch, aren't they? I don't know if any of you have ever worked graveyard shifts. Those late hours are very difficult to remain alert, to remain aware. And I think we live in that same difficulty in this life now. We're in the late hours and it's hard to stay alert. It's hard to stay awake. Verse 43, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Like I said, while we are in this life, it is always night. We are living in the graveyard shift. 
These are the most difficult hours. Our Christian duty in these last days is to stand watch and to be ready at any hour. Since we know not the hour of his return, we must be ready at every hour. We must be prepared at every hour. To be a disciple of Christ is to be ready at any moment to declare that we are his and that whatsoever hour he comes, he finds us surprised but faithful. To watch for the Lord's returns means to be looking for it, to be longing for it, to have a right relationship with temporal longings because we want our eternal redemption far and above our temporal things. On the night that Jesus was to be handed over, uh, he commanded the disciples to be watchful and prayerful. In Matthew 26, verse 38 through 45, it reads this. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so men, could you not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying so that you do not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and he prayed, saying, My father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink from it, your will be done. Again he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and he went and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Three times they failed. In these last days, the hour of the Lord's return is at hand. Are we mindful and prayerful? It is those who are mindful and prayerful that will be gathered. The negligent will be left to judgment. Who will stand? Those who diligently and faithfully stand watch. Those of us who stand watch in the graveyard shift as we long for his return. He is coming in an hour when you don't think he will. Verse 45. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. This is the big question of our text. This is the big question of our time. Since the return of the Lord Jesus is imminent and will come at a surprising hour, who is the faithful and sensible servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? What will he find that person doing when he returns? The slave owner in this brief illustration from Jesus has tasked his servants with taking charge of his household and to be feeding the members of his house. The faithful and sensible servant of King Jesus the master who rules and reigns from the throne of God will be those who are found doing the master's bidding. That's what he says. That's what this passage says. Who is the faithful and sensible slave from whom his master put in charge of the household to give them their food at the proper time? He's saying that those who are under the master do the master's bidding while they wait for him. They do the master's work while they wait for him to return. 
The one who is considered faithful and sensible is the one whom he finds doing the master's bidding when he comes back. That is, he is caring for the household of God. He is feeding the members of the house with spiritual nourishment that comes from the word of God. What has the Lord bid the church member to do? What does he bid each one of us as Christians to do while we wait for his return? I read some commentaries where this is, is they're, they're only speaking about the pastor and the elders and their role. But no, this is for the whole church. The whole church is responsible for the feeding of the flock of God. The whole church is responsible to care for the household of God. The whole church. What has the Lord bid the church member, the Christian, to do while we wait? What God commanded Israel to do, as he commanded, uh, is the same thing that is commanded of Christ Jesus. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, I'm going to turn there for a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 6, you guys are all familiar with this passage. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Verse 5, verse 6, these words which I am commanding you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. As one is responsible for the household of God. All of Israel. It was responsible. All who are in Christ are responsible. Jesus uh, sums up the command of God for his people in chapter 22 of Matthew, uh, verses 37 through 40. He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The faithful and sensible servant is the one who does his master's bidding in his heavenly absence, awaiting for the redemptive return as Jesus comes for the faithful. In the first epistle of John, the love for God is manifested in love for and obedience to the commandments and in love for one another. No greater love has a church member for one another than to feed their fellow church member on the promises of God from his word. You can do no greater favor to the person sitting across the room from you when they declare a trouble in their life, when they talk about a struggle they have with sin, than to tell them of the promises of God in his word, to remind them. You can do them no greater favor, no greater good than to do that. The faithful and sensible servant of King Jesus, I believe, will be found doing these things, assembling together regularly, as Hebrews 10.25 says, protecting the doctrinal integrity of the gospel, as we see in Galatians 1, 1-7, receiving into fellowship the repentant and regenerate, as we see in 1 Corinthians 5, 4 and 5. We will be loving one another. We'll be in humble submission to one another and the appointed servants that God has for us. Love for God is manifested in the faithful and sensible servants' commitment to the Great Commission. 
to being obedient, to be a disciple who makes disciples. Verse 47. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. This is the faithful and sensible servant. But if the evil slave says in his heart, verse 48, my master is not coming for a long time, and he begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour which he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The faithful and sensible servant of King Jesus, in a nutshell, keeps the Lord's house in order until he returns. Conversely, the servant of King Jesus, because of an extended absence, they think that they're serving King Jesus, they're living carnally, saying something like this in their own hearts, I have plenty of time to get things in order before the king and the ruler of heaven returns. This reveals to the king upon his return that that servant is of a wicked heart, that that servant is self-indulgent, and supposes that the master's charge was something to lord over others, as we see in this passage. His charge was something to be used for earthly gain and self-exalting power. There is an American idea that has infiltrated the church at some point. I don't know when it happened. I think it happened before my time, maybe. But it's an idea that still floats out there today, and it's a heretical thought. And it's this thought, that there's such thing as a carnal Christian. That there's such thing as having received the goodness of God and then living any way you want to. As long as you confess Jesus as Lord with your mouth, you can live however you want. And somehow you're still saved. That you walked down an aisle one time. That maybe even you got baptized. That somehow, just those acts make you a Christian. This is heretical thought. Paul Washer writes this, It is an absurd thing to think that a person can believe in Christ with their heart and not have it radically affect every aspect of their life. It's absurd that a person can believe that they have Christ with their heart and not have it radically change every aspect of their life. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. For the servant who is neglectful of the charge left to him by King Jesus, there's a reckoning. The master of that slave will come on that day when he does not expect him, and at an hour when he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When Jesus comes, and it could be today, it could be a decade away, but he will come suddenly, and when you least expect it. Will he find you a faithful and sensible servant? He does. Your coming reward is great. Have you neglected to steward the charge of King Jesus? He's making a distinction when he comes between the faithful and the neglectful, between the steward and the carnal, making a distinction from the wheat and the tares. Today, the word of God may be revealing to you that you're a Christian in name only. Perhaps you've never repented and believed on the Lord Jesus for salvation. 
There's good news. Because today is the day that if the Holy Spirit is convicting you of that truth, today is the day that if you turn from that and turn to him, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. And by the power of the Spirit, he will make you a faithful servant. Today is the day of repentance. Christ Jesus died for sinners. God raised him from the dead that you may have new life in his name. And he's giving you charge of his household in his absence. If you repent and believe from the heart, this new life is yours. If the world has grabbed you, Christian, and you've drifted away from kingdom purpose in your life, repent and believe again. Repent and believe again. If you're truly his, you will. If you are the faithful and sensible servant, and the Lord is commanding you right now and, and convicting you and telling you that the world has grabbed too much of you, that you've compromised too much, that you've participated in the system, that you've taken its treasures above the treasures of eternity. He's given you repentance and faith to believe again. Confess your sin. He's faithful to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I want to end with this thought. And I'm just going to leave it there. And I want you to silently reflect upon these four or five words. Are you ready for the return of the king?